Welcome to episode 36 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episode with somebody who you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. As we continue to bring a wide range of perspectives about suicide of the military-affiliated population, we think it's important to bring the voices of those leaders who are impacted by suicide, either in their own lives or especially among the ranks of those that we served with. You can't get any higher in the enlisted ranks of the military than the gentleman we're going to talk to today. And this shows that the discussion about suicide prevention in the military is happening at the highest levels. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yes, so Sergeant Major Brian Battaglia is a retired United States Marine whose nearly 37 years of active duty service culminated in the role of senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. During his tenure, he played a pivotal role in moving the services towards a more holistic approach to mental health and wellness through the Total Force Fitness Program. Like many who serve in the military, he has lost both friends and troops to suicide. Yes, I'm glad that we were able to get his perspective on the show. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So one of the things that a non-commissioned officer does, of course, is to accomplish the mission and take care of the troops. And, and as senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that is absolutely what you did. And, and all of the troops, including me before I retired in 2014, fell under your purview. Suicide is an impact on both of those things, taking care of the troops and the mission. And this is something that you have been focusing on for well over a decade, if not most of your career. Yeah, that's that's correct, Dwayne. And as you, as a non-commissioned officer yourself, it was just it was part of our internal charter. And regardless of what unit and or its mission, welfare and readiness of the men and women was vital to mission accomplishment. And as my career was highlighted as a SEAC on my very last tour before retirement, part of that charter was uh, devoted to suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention within the entire armed forces. And now that I look back on it, I'm, I'm not proud to say that I feel that I, I failed in some regard to this part of the charter because I, I know, like many, I could have done more. And so I wish I had more time, more resources, more assets to make a larger impact with regard to reducing suicide in the armed forces. But we figured some things out. The, the numbers dropped ever so slightly during my, my tenure from 2011 to 15, but that's not really a success story. And there's even some data that didn't go any further with regards to studies. And it's always bothered me because I think it was some pretty critical data that could have materialized into helping us uh, understand this a, a little more. Yeah, again, I've been at suicide prevention for quite a few years. I have personal friends that I've lost as well as troops and Fortunately, no family members, but I am tied to it for the rest of my life. 
And this is obviously something, as you said, when you came into the role in 2011, you started talking about it right away. You hit the ground running, again, because of the impact on readiness and, and just on morale. What are some of the things that you have seen that have been effective, either in your role as SEAC or, or even after you retired? Yeah, great question. And thanks for it, because it really hits a sweet spot. Most importantly, let me talk about the model of program that, that I use as a personal individual, as, as well as a military leader. And I fell onto this while still serving. The program's called uh, Total Force Fitness. This Total Force Fitness resiliency model was kind of staffed and developed on the joint staff. And it was meant for all of the service branches within the armed forces to include National Guard and Reserve. It's, it's a resiliency model that works. And I, I can say that now because I used it. And I'm going to be completely honest that when it first was being developed and staffed, I, I helped write it as this was a, a fairly large team. I wasn't bought into it or married to it just yet. I was very skeptical. And, and and then as I took over as a SEAC in 2011, I was asked to co-champion it. And, and I'm not going to advocate or, or co-champion something, especially of this magnitude, if in fact I don't believe in it, nor does it work. So I used it myself. And what I came to find out is I didn't really understand how unfit I was. Now, this is both from combat injuries, non-combat injuries, just going through adversity and traumatic events during the course of one's life. It isn't focused or contained with just with the combat. And, and uh, so all of this is inclusive. And I gave it a real honest approach and seeing that my unfitness was in need of repair. And this total force fitness model with the honest assessment that I gave really helped me individually, personally, and professionally rebound to where I could never return to 100%. I, I, I knew that with regards to my physical sort of abilities and agility, but I was able to return to a level that gave me some optimal level of performance that I could still contribute and and to participate with this team. And so this resiliency model is based off of a series of ingredients that's listed in this wheel of fitness. When we talk fitness, as I'm sure you can relate to, Dwayne, we think about running, sit-ups, pull-ups, crunches, that sort of thing. And, and while that's fitness, it is, but it's only a very small portion of fitness. And this resiliency model is so much more holistic that it, it describes and defines fitness in a sense from mental fitness, social fitness, behavioral fitness, psychological fitness, and so, so forth and so on. And adding all of these ingredients or a portion thereof into your lifestyle when adversity or injury hits you, allows you to build back your mind, body, and spirit into this level of performance where you can effectively function. And again, I, I used it so I, I know that it works, and that's the only reason that I started to co-champion it. Since that time, though, the service branches, for that matter, have picked up on it and developed and tailored their own sort of model, which may slightly differ, but again, the overarching model remains similar that it impacts and affects the mind, body, and spirit. It's called Total Force Fitness, and, and again, it's one of the main modalities that I use even to this day. This program is literally universal, so it's not just for the uniformed service. It could 
uh, impact, help and assist family members, the American public. It's that universal. And that's one of the programs that I'd really like to highlight. And then the other one that I've really seen firsthand, it's taken a major and positive impact toward combating suicide among our veteran community for that matter is is service dogs. And I, when I first delved into what can a service dog really provide, I wasn't educated or aware until I visited and started to dive in personally as to what these animals contribute to the welfare, well-being, long-term health care to a veteran. And my personal affiliation with the service dog industry is, and I'm not getting paid to, to make this comment either, it's a thing I believe in and, and I know it's helped veterans. With three of my own colleagues I've helped uh, to get enrolled and admitted into getting a service dog for, they've told me if they, they didn't have this, well, you know how that sentence is going to end. And, uh, and so that's the second of two programs that I really, truly believe, while it's not the answer all, can help and assist uh, veterans, family members, I- I- anyone in overcoming adversity and traumatic events through other courses of action and options rather than using suicide as a solution. I really appreciate the total force fitness, right? So I came in the army a little bit later than you did. I joined in 92, but this post eighties, pre nine 11 kind of military and say, even in the eighties or the nineties, this wasn't really a concept. Fitness meant fitness, right? Fitness meant physical fitness. I, and this isn't, this isn't hearsay. I actually did have a superior say, if the army wanted you to have a family, they would have issued you one. That was a concept back then. Whereas the total force fitness has relationship health in there. It has psychological health. It has behavioral health. It, it has beyond just the physical health, which is, as you said, it's very important. This is almost a paradigm shift in the way the military is thinking. It's not just about the muscles and lung capacity. It's about your entire emotional well-being. Totally agree. Can't argue. I think in some respect, it goes beyond that because there's a spiritual affiliation with this as well. Hence the mind, body, and spirit. So yeah, I, I agree with you, but mind, body, and spirit all of that inclusive total force fitness. And it was a pretty magnificent change or transformation within the military because the old timers, myself included, and I think you can relate to this, were used to just the linear and myopic sort of definition of fitness, meaning the physical fitness and lung capacity. Yeah. And that reminds me, we had a General Graham on the show and he talks about when the army went from PT and boots to PT and sneakers and having that transition, all the old timers are like, we're going to get soft. We're going to get weak. When it actually improved, we stopped having the shin splints and fallen arches and all these other things. But this idea of the need to shift away from what we think had been working so long to a new way of thinking and, and actually improvement. And that's what I see the total force fitness concept or the total wellness or total health concept is actually doing is it's not taking away from the stuff that didn't work. It's actually making things better. Well, you know, as well as I do, and I don't mean to to make this lighthearted, but it's better to be on the left side of the blast than the right side of it. And General Graham and I know one another. As a matter of fact, I visited his Vets for Warriors Mm -hmm. that he runs up in New Jersey 
partnered with with Rutgers University. I think that's a great program they got going up there with the call center. And so it's very fortunate to have someone of his caliber come on your show and offer his observations and advice. But yeah, this model is is effective. And again, I'm the campaign manager of my own level of resiliency. And and I, I really truly wouldn't be saying that. And I think you could respect that as a former first sergeant yourself, that if we didn't believe in it, we wouldn't sell it and advocate for it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and while that is true, and you mentioned that, even, again, hitting the ground running as soon as you took on the role of SEAC, uh, we're going on 10 years of you addressing this at the strategic level. But there are some things that we can be doing better. There's some things that aren't working quite as well when it comes to suicide prevention, either in the military population or now yourself as a veteran in the veteran population. Yeah, I definitely think there's some things we can be doing better. What made me think of that is on a previous show, you had mentioned one of the methods that had been socialized or or something that counting to 10 and walking in another room just still makes you mad, but you're in another room. In the 60s growing up, my mom taught me that technique. And I think it, you know, it was meant to serve as a very short time out, but I would suggest that it may be a more effective method for a child than an adult. And and not to downplay that technique because it still does work. One may still be mad in another room. Perhaps it was less mad after the timeout and hopefully causes a stoppage of an irrational and, and knee-jerk decision by becoming destructive with property or even your person. I think both the DOD and the VA, which obviously, however, the DOD takes care of us, essentially we're turned over to the VA, They've made some significant efforts with reducing medications, uh, from having conversations with patients about alternative courses of actions to enrolling them into various modalities that go back to applying the art more than the science. And that's the other part of something I, I really believe in and been able to try to promote constantly. And I understand that the science is important. We're based from a medical perspective off of evidence-based data. Medications uh, are necessary, perhaps not for all, but for most. And and how much of those medications is a whole nother subject and each case differs. But I think from that science standpoint, there's got to be an applied art. And the art is the non-medical solutions or approaches that I truly believe are just as effective and sometimes more effective than the medical aspect of them. And the art can be the service dogs is a form of art. Uh, other kinds of therapy like equine therapy and music, those artful non-medicinal methods. And so the VA promoting that sort of thing and supporting and all the nonprofits we have working all play a part in these peer-to-peer activities and hobbies that the numbers of where we could be with suicide if we didn't have all those additional approaches to therapy are not as tangible. So you just have to assume that it is making a positive impact. I'll tell you, Dwayne, that I think something else we're doing better to prevent suicide is the transition programs that the DOD affords and mandates to its service members prior to retiring or transitioning. You and I have seen both ends of it. If you retired at 14, then you would have been on the sort of the beginning end of the new and revised transition assistance program, the soldier for life, if you will, that is so much more effective than what we used to have when you first came in the military because it was nearly nothing. And 
I've seen those changes too. I helped rewrite the transition assistance program with the military. And so I'm just a, a firm believer again that the better we prepare a service member and its family for transition, that the, the lower risk probability we send them into this new environment called civilian world. We call it a transition in verbiage, but for me at 37 years, I felt like it was a transformation, mm-hmm. not just a simple transition. And then something else I think we've done better, and I just want to point this out, that you, you and Shauna have obviously heard the, the term it's okay not to be okay. And I've, I heard that first from my own Commandant General Amos. I'm not sure if he coined it, but it was pretty powerful. And I believe it significantly helped overcome this stigma, which still raises its ugly head, but I believe it's much more reduced. But personally for the Corps, to say that, it gave me as a Marine some reassurance that with my own injuries, and knowing that I can no longer operate at 100%, this new norm that I was able to function at still enabled me to contribute and be on this team, you know, called the, the joint team or the USMC team. And with without that, it's okay not to be okay, then what was left was that continuing to try to excel. And if you're not meeting this bar standard, then you're either going to be put on the bench or put aside or separated or retired because you're not effective. So I, I really credit and thank General Amos for um, putting that out as the as the feeler of saying, we, we know you may be hurt and injured, but we can still use you to defend our nation. That's absolutely something that I have seen shift again over and maybe even over the last 15 years, after we really started seeing things get pretty hairy in Iraq and Afghanistan in the right. late 2000s, that idea of senior leaders coming out and saying, hey, you, you don't go through this without getting a couple dents in the fenders, and it's okay. And on, on the other side, however, it's okay for the commandant to stand up and say, I'm going to therapy. It's okay for the, the SEAC to say, it's okay to talk to somebody about your emotions. But that exactly. private that's sitting next to the PFC that's looking to their E5 down to the individual team and squad level, that message is a little harder to, to get out there because the squad leader can say, oh yeah, absolutely. The old man can say what he wants, but you better not say anything. Yeah, I, I agree. There even can be those two or multiple different levels of standard and expectations depending on how one interprets or supports this, it's okay not to be okay. And I've, again, witnessed just visiting out in the field of various NCOs looking down upon their subordinates or junior NCOs if they didn't have any combat experience as an NCO, then they didn't meet the medal to lead troops. And, and, and so that brought on traumatic events in of itself. Or if your injury wasn't combat related, that this thing of you're okay, it's okay not to be okay, doesn't apply to you. You got your injury in a training accident, and, and so this doesn't apply to you. And just different ways of interpretation, it can take it down a whole nother path. But I offered that as just a, a personal perspective of what it did for me. And I'm hoping that it showered through the rest of the rank and file within the core, much less the other services too, that despite all of our injuries we're suffering over in Iraq and Afghanistan, we know injuries are going to take place, but you can still serve your country, even if if it may not be in the same MOS or AFSC or specialty that you originally joined. Yeah, fitness is holistic. So does our studies and investigations into solving 
this to reduce it overall. It has to be holistic as well. If it's incomplete, we're just too advanced as a country to shortfall something that you would expect it to be thorough. No, that's uh, that's absolutely true. And I think that, again, this is what we're trying to do is just ask the critical questions that may lead to further questions that may eventually lead to the answer. I really appreciate you coming on the show to be part of it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dwayne. We join a long list of, of veteran community and everyday human beings, right, who face adversity. Some are coping better than others, but I'm saying that we're all in this together and no one really is immune to traumatic events and dealing with adversity that cause pain, anguish, and discomfort. Again, just to reiterate, I think finding the right recipe is the key to daily and long-term wellness, and that requires an ingredient or a combination of ingredients to make up this right recipe. Total Force Fitness was the overarching model that worked for me. I know it works for others and maybe it can help more. And and, and so I'm going to continue to promote it and hopefully if it saves one. But the $60,000 question that we all ask one another is how do we remove or better yet never consider suicide as a remedy to dealing with an obstacle crisis or road bump in, in one's life? And I'll be the first to admit that life is full of obstacles, but it can also be full of reward. And the better resiliency you have in your mind, body, experience, the higher the reward. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I really appreciate you sharing. Thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you, Dwayne. It continues to encourage me that the senior leaders in the military, such as Admiral Tony Curta and now Sergeant Major Battaglia, are considering suicide prevention as a significant issue. Definitely. When I was listening to this interview, I had one of those moments where I heard something I've heard many other times, but in a new light. The term military discharge is often used interchangeably with the term military separation. What this interview did for me was bring the concept of attachment and separation into very clear focus around the human need to be part of a valued team, even if one has some challenges. When I think about total force fitness, I like the idea of an overarching framework that empowers warriors to move on their own healing. Despite functional limitations in some areas, the best warriors continue to evolve mentally, morally, and spiritually. There's an accumulation of wisdom with battle-tested warriors. This is irreplaceable and makes them continued assets to their branch of service. An injury doesn't necessarily have to end a career. And the military can benefit from the skills and earned wisdom of seasoned warriors. That's absolutely accurate. As I was listening to the interview, there's an organization, it's out of Fort Meade, Maryland. It's called the Asymmetrical Warfare Group. And it was stood up while I was there at Fort Meade. And somebody referred to it as special forces for old guys. And there's this discussion is as we tend to age or as maybe our physical health declines, that ability to engage in what we've always engaged in has not declined. And I think there always is a role. Dr. Ed Tick calls them elder warriors. And I think that Sergeant Major Battaglia absolutely is an elder warrior. And the elder warrior plays a significant role in, in passing on wisdom and experience. Yeah. And when you asked Brian Dwayne what he thinks works in terms of suicide prevention, he made a specific observation that service dogs can play a role in preventing suicide. And to loop back to what I was just talking about, 
separating from a network of people that are deeply interdependent can feel like an emotional amputation. Most civilians have no really good comparison for what it feels like to live in such close quarters with other humans constantly. The level of intimacy and trust that develops when you sleep four feet away from each other, when you go through these incredible challenges, and when you experience peak highs in life together can't be put into words. While I've not served in the military myself, I draw from multiple experiences of traveling to South America, working in a camp for kids with polio in the high mountains of Peru, living with Shipibo Indians on the Amazon River, going to Chile with my college boyfriend, now husband of 20 years, to live in the Atacama Desert with the Aymaran Indians. And the bonds that are created through these experiences can't be put into words. For combat deployment or in any other situation where there are life or death stakes, such as the work that our first responders do every day or others who risk their lives for the safety of others, this depth of interdependence is even greater. Those in one's unit are a constant presence in one's life. And as a result, one's identity becomes inextricably linked to the identity of one's brothers and sisters in arms. So the emotional amputation of being separated can mimic something like phantom limb pain. So when a service dog comes into someone's life, it doesn't just create a deep bond, but it's also the same constancy of presence. Life is walked together, not alone. It's a return to an interdependent life. In addition, a service dog has well-developed senses to detect the presence of threat. And this has a very practical implication. The dog will sense a threat so that his or her owner can feel calm if the dog is calm. So a service dog not only performs the services needed, but just their sheer physical presence gives some people the reason they need to stay in the fight. This has certainly been true for a number of warriors in my network. You know, that point about the connectedness of those you served with, especially in combat, paradoxically, in my experience, and I I think the research backs this up, is that the more stressful or traumatic the situation, the stronger the bonds are. In my five deployments, two were specifically uh, significantly in combat, even though my second Afghanistan tour was to a combat zone. But I remain closer and I feel closer to the unit that I was in Iraq and Afghanistan than, say, the unit that I was in Bosnia or the guys that I went to North Africa with, which were not as traumatic of deployments. And that's one thing is that traumatic bond, if we can call it that, but then being able to have that constant reassurance and certainly having a service animal can also replicate that reassurance and, and cause veterans to feel secure. That is an odd gift of trauma shared together, that you have a bond with people that is hard to put into words. Trauma that you go through alone is a totally different matter, of course, but I definitely hear that constantly from combat veterans like yourself. Yes, and I think that definitely with uh, Sergeant Major Battaglia's point of view and, and his consideration, and even the effort that, that he made while he was a senior enlisted advisor, Joint Chiefs of Staff, that he even says he continues uh, to this day, even outside the military, absolutely appreciate him coming on the show. We thank everybody for taking the time to listen. Make sure to look at the show notes, which can be found at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS36 or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. 
As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.